Welcome back to the Read the Bible podcast. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Last time we did verses 1 through 8, and so today we're going to be starting in verse 9 of James. And so verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. <clears throat> and so we had, we have one sentence there about the lowly brother uh, boasting in his exaltation. The rest of it is about the rich in his humiliation. It says the rich is like a flower of the grass. He will pass away. The sun will rise with its scorching heat and wither the grass. And it's not just the rich. It's all flesh, all people. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6, 7, and 8 says, All flesh is like the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And so all flesh is like the grass. We're all, um, you know, the letter, or the book of Ecclesiastes, I, we did a sermon series on that last time. I just love that so much. It's, it's talked so much about how our life is like a vapor. It's just here and gone. Our life is like the grass. It, it's here one day and it's dried up by the sun and scorched the next day. Um, and so the rich person should exalt in his humiliation because it makes him humble. It's easy to not be humble as a wealthy person. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, the rich man comes to Jesus and Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's a metaphor about how truly difficult it is for a rich person to have the humility that it takes to be saved. Salvation takes humility. We have to admit our sin, repent of it. And uh, there's something about wealth that leads to our pride and uh, makes it difficult for us to do that, to trust in the Lord rather than feel self-sufficient. Um, and so the rich person should exalt or should, uh, should um, boast in his humiliation, which is an interesting concept, but it's um, through that humiliation. And I'm guessing that there's spiritual qualities here. It doesn't define these. James doesn't define these incredibly deeply. But I'm guessing the humiliation should be, the rich person should be boasting in uh, a recognition of his temporal being, how fast his life goes, how, how sinful he is. All those things a rich person should be um, thinking about to keep themselves humble so that their focus is on the Lord. And the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation. And this is probably uh, maybe something more like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about um, Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so there's there's something about our faith um, that exalts us uh, with Christ. And the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation. And that's a powerful message for many people who feel left out, left behind, forgotten by God. Uh, you haven't been forgotten. Um, you may be of humble circumstances, but through your faith in Jesus Christ, you will reign and rule in a kingdom that will last for eternity and it will be glorious. And so the person who's lowly should boast in that and the person who's rich should probably spend more time focusing on uh, things which keep them humble. 
And verses 9 through 11, that seems to be the kind of the, um, the idea there that we should not get too low, but remind ourselves about the great things that we have in Christ. And we should not get too high and lofty and prideful, but remember um, all those reasons that we have to be humble, that we're never without need for God's mercy every moment of our lives. In verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And going down to verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so we should be thankful for those trials and count all joy and look for the fruit that those trials bring when we follow God through them. And then we should uh, remember that we're blessed when we remain steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I always say God is growing people who love him in this world. That is, his goal is out of his creation to separate those who love him from those who reject him so that those who love him can live in eternity with him. And here we receive that. The crown of life is undoubtedly eternal life. And we receive that. Um, those who love him will receive that. You know, language is fluid, and that's one of the reasons why I don't do a ton of word studies because language is fluid and the authors of the Bible wrote in ideas and used words to obviously make up those ideas. But language is a little fluid and you know all of those things are ultimately synonyms for each other. Um, faith in him, love in him, belief in him, they all capture a little different piece of that puzzle or a little, di you know, a little different side of that prism. And it's good to read the Bible and put them all together. Um, but language is a little fluid, and God has promised eternal life to those who love him. Those who love him believe in him. Those who believe in him have put their faith in him. Those who have put their faith in him love him, and you come back you know, all the way around the circle. So here, undoubtedly, it's eternal life. And it's not saying anything different than John 3.16. John 3.16 says, whoever believes. This verse says, God has promised to those who love him. Um, it's all getting at that same concept. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. Um, what does it look like to remain steadfast under trial? I would say it um, is to maintain your love in God through that trial, maintain your faith in God through that trial. I would say it doesn't always look like coming through sinless in that trial. Um, if that trial, if that struggle, and it, it goes into temptation in just a moment, so that's why I think those are connected. In fact, let's uh, continue on reading verse 13. We'll come back to that thought. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Just like Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the, the wilderness, um, turn this rock into bread, things like that. Um, God is not tempted with evil. Those are not serious threats there. Jesus being God was not tempted by them. God is not tempted by them. God does not do evil. God does not like evil. God... Um, does not bring evil into our lives to derail us, does not bring evil into innocent people's lives. God is not to blame, and we're always looking for somebody to blame. When Adam, Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, when God comes to Adam and says, you know, what's the deal? Adam tries to blame it on his wife. Then God, in verse 13, turns to the wife Eve and says, what's the deal? And she tries to blame it on the serpent. We're always looking for people to blame, but we should never blame God. God does not tempt us with evil. We are not tempted by God to do evil. 
And so when you talk about um, remaining steadfast under trial, I think that's why some of this uh, has got to apply to the temptation um, that sin brings. And those who remain faithful under that trial, um, I think it looks like trying to cut sin out of your life as much as possible. Fight against sin in every way. We're going to get into Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus really points out um, the depth of the sin of our hearts. Um, we just talked about on Sunday, if you were there um, at Cornerstone, we talked on Sunday about Mark chapter 9, where Jesus talks about um, cutting off our, uh, actually chapter, yeah, chapter 9, verse 42, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And so I think remaining steadfast under trial definitely looks like doing everything we can to f- avoid that sin. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of temptation, says, uh, God is, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're always responsible for our sin. Uh, we're always able to be held accountable for our sin. God is faithful. He will always allow us to overcome that temptation. And so every time we fail, that's our, our bad. And we are, um, we are guilty of that sin. We have no one else to blame. So what does it look like to remain steadfast under trial? I don't think it necessarily looks like being sinless. Although I definitely think it looks like doing absolutely everything we can to avoid that sin and to follow God in that moment in that time. Um, I think it looks like, even though when we sin, uh, keeping our faith and love in Jesus. Um, Let's go to the rest of these verses, and then we'll talk about um, what it would look like to fail under trial. Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not God tempting us, it's our own desire, our own sinful desire. That's what tempts us. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so ultimately, to, you know, lose your faith under trial, I think looks more like, you know, what James is describing right here. We're tempted by our own desire. We give in to that desire. We sin. And then it says, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now, the, the punishment for all sin is death. And so what is James talking about here. Well, it's effective death. It's effectively turning away from Christ and choosing our sin. That's the death he's talking about here. Sin separates us from God. We fail to get that crown of life when we stop loving him more than our sin. When we love God more than our sin, whenever we sin, we turn in genuine repentance and we say, forgive me, Lord, and change my heart. And we seek to cut that sin out of our lives. Mark 9 Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. Same with your feet. Cut it off. It's better to have one foot and go to heaven than two feet and go to hell. Ultimately, sin comes from the heart and we can't cut that out. So Jesus' prominent message there is we need his forgiveness. The only thing that will save us from sin, we could cut off our hands, our feet, poke out our eyes, do whatever we want. We wouldn't be sinless. The only thing that really takes away our sin is our faith in Jesus Christ. And when sin is fully grown, it can keep us from putting our faith in Jesus Christ. James is going to get into this here in a minute. But to not have faith in God means to embrace our sin and reject his forgiveness. 
Now we might say that we want his forgiveness or say that we're repenting, but true repentance really does have fruit. It looks like trying to cut sin out of your life. And so what James is saying here is when we desire sin, we do sin, and then when sin, sin is fully grown, we love it more than God. And effectively, we've stopped putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Again, no matter what we say, at that point, we've effectively stopped putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And James is really big on that. In a moment, he's going to say, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself in verse 22. And so to ultimately, you know, for that momentary trial, it looks like not sinning. But ultimately, the trial looks like putting our faith in Jesus and true repentance every single time we sin and honestly for every moment. Because even though we're not actively sinning, there's still that sin in our heart. And the active sins that we do, that's coming from a place in our heart which needs forgiveness every moment. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, I think it's more than putting our faith and trust in him for just the momentary sins, but for the sinfulness in our heart. And what happens is when we love our sin so much, we stop repenting, we choose it, we embrace that sin, we really don't want it to go away, we want it more than God, and we may come to church, we may read the Bible to sort of, you know, ease our conscience and say, look, I'm still following the Lord. But ultimately what it looks like to follow the Lord is to repent of that sin and to love God more than that evil. And so the death that James is talking about in verse 15, I think it is what it is, is not receiving that crown of life in verse 12, not receiving that eternal life. And it's, it's loving our sin more than the Lord to the point where we actually effectively reject Jesus Christ's forgiveness and salvation and choose our sin. And so how can we make sure that we're not in that place? How can we make sure we're passing that trial? Well, I think we should always be absolutely frightened when we get to the point of falling into habitual sin and we should be on our knees in repentance to Jesus, recognizing that this is a, this sin right here. This is what we're talking about. This is what um, is separating us from God. This is why Jesus needed to die on the cross. This is, is what hell was made for, was so that that sin can go away into that hell and never come back again. And it looks like taking legitimate steps to attempt to be free from that sin, whether it's accountability, um, whether it's, you know, Whatever action it is, it's, it's taking some actions to look to be free from that sin uh, and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, not only do we uh, have his grace and recognize his forgiveness for our sins, but it's more than that. It's we recognize that we need to be um, fighting against that sin. Not only do we have Jesus' grace and his mercy and so that we can be confident of our salvation, but we also have... Um, we also have Jesus' strength and spirit to battle that sin in our life. And so it doesn't look like being complacent. It does look like not condemning ourselves, right? We don't want to fail that trial by condemning ourselves and saying, you know, doubting our salvation um, when we don't need to. But it, you know, what it doesn't look like is being complacent. We have his grace and his forgiveness, and we also have his strength to battle. Do not be deceived, my brothers. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And so sometimes we can, in this world where there's a mixture of good and evil, we can think God is tempting me or God is bringing evil into my life. 
um, and we can doubt God's goodness. But here he reestablishes that every good every good gift is from God. There's no variation or shadow of that at all. God is good. God is only good. And there's no darkness in him. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is good. God is only good. Sometimes we can get confused on that in this world, but evil is from Satan. God is not responsible for it, and he promises to get rid of it. Matthew chapter 7.11 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If we know how to give good gifts, how much more does God know how to give good gifts? Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world and everything he creates is good. God created and he saw that it was good time and time again. God only does good things. God never does bad things. James is establishing that God never tempts us. Instead of tempting us to sin, what God does is he brings good gifts into our lives and every good gift, every perfect gift is from him. So if you're struggling in this world, I think one of the most important things to remind ourselves and to believe in and to get down as Christians is just that fact. There is no darkness in God. He is good. He is all good. Verse 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put, away, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Starts off saying, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Just very good, simple, practical wisdom that is so hard to put into action. It's so hard to be quick to hear, so hard to be slow to speak. You know, especially today, right? We got everybody wanting to tweet and get their opinion out. Everyone wants their blog posts read. Everyone wants to be the Facebook blogger. Everybody wants to have their ideas being read and thought about. Everybody wants to put their comment at the bottom of the article. Like We're just more and more people who want to be heard and quick to speak, slow to hear. You look at how the media jumped on that situation with the catholic uh, school guy who you know the video came out and you have all these celebrities i mean the poor kid's life was almost ruined right i mean he's just vilified i mean just think about that a poor 16 year old kid who actually seems to have handled himself really well maybe not perfectly maybe his smile was a little bit too smug right came off as a little unlikable because when he smiled in the face of that man came off as maybe ingenuine but I'm telling you, like, that's an intense situation to be in. That kid handled himself exceptionally well, probably better than I would have, and yet just completely vilified and slammed by a society that is way too quick to speak. Way, way too quick for anger. And how often do we do that in our own lives, too? We see something that we might not like, and before we even try to understand it, we just start talking. And that's not wise. And I know it's not wise, but I'm so terrible at doing it in my everyday life. So absolutely, absolutely terrible. May God bless me that I can have these, hear this word and it be implanted in my heart. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And James is going to talk about what it looks like to have that word implanted. 
The implanted word means you're a doer of the word and not a hearer only, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Every Christian reading the Bible, sitting in church, needs to ask themselves, are we making ourselves feel better by hearing the word? Or are we looking to do that word? It's easy to embrace your sin and not really be putting your faith in Jesus Christ and then deceiving yourself by making yourself feel good by just coming to church. Brandon Price and I, our worship leader, we were talking about we should you know, hand out punch cards in with the bulletins at some point as just sort of a, a way to remind people that this is not about coming and hearing the word and punching the card and going home. That's not what it looks like to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so there it goes. The whole tension in Christianity, it's, so, it's, it's a hard balance to walk. It's a hard tension to have. Am I hearing the word or am I doing the word? Because ultimately Christianity is a religion about God's forgiveness for us for how we are not doers of the word. That is the bottom line. And yet there's this tension because we seek to become more and more doers of the word. And so we seek to do the word even though we're people who don't do the word and need Jesus' forgiveness. And so there's always that, that, you know, the more spiritually mature we are, I think the more we can hold those two things and have them be positive and hold them in, in tension that I am in need of God's grace and I have God's grace and I can be assured of my salvation because God is good. I've repented and put my faith in Jesus. That's part of it. And then the other part is I'm a sinner and I need to fight against sin and every time I sin, it's, it's, a, it's a lack of faith on my part and I need to seek to submit my heart more and more to Jesus Christ so that I'm becoming more and more a doer of the word so there's that huge tension between being, you know, people who recognize that we're never going to be fully doers of this word. We're always going to be in need of Jesus' forgiveness. And yet, there's still this need to, to be the, that doer. We can't just say that we are saved and then no longer, I'm saved by Jesus, so I'm no longer concerned about my sin. And then we can't say that I'm concerned about my sin, so I must no longer be saved. Right, those are the two, the two lies, the two ways that we can get out of balance there. But it's a balance. We want to have our faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness and then do every single thing we can to make sure that we are growing and being doers of the word and not just hearers only. James says in verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he who... For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And so that was probably a, a big experience for people back in the day, right? Mirrors were rare, very rare to find a reflective surface so smooth and so clean that you could really see what you looked like. It's probably a very rememberable experience for anyone back in the day that, wow, look at that. I had that opportunity, I have this opportunity to see myself in a mirror. And since you don't get to see yourself very often, since it's not an opportunity that happens very much, it's probably something that they could all relate to, of looking at themselves in a mirror and then walking away and immediately forgetting what they look like. James says this is what it's like to hear the word and not do it. We hear it and we get a glimpse in that mirror of, of what we're supposed to be like, of who God created us to be as people, of what is godly, of what is good. We see that reflection in the mirror and we hear it, but if it doesn't get implanted in our heart, we walk away, and it just, it's gone. That reflection is nowhere to be found. It's not easy to get back, either. 
And James says, be not just hearers, be doers. The one who looks, verse 25, the one who looks into the law, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And we're going to get into this more in chapter 2, verse 14 and on. Uh, but James really has an emphasis on true faith. James' concern with works comes from his concern about genuine faith. You know, James is emphasizing what people do because he, clearly he's writing to people who've convinced themselves that they're followers of Jesus who aren't following him. It's people who've turned the other way. They're not in the path. They're on the side of the road. They're headed the wrong way all the way while saying, I'm following the Lord, I'm following the Lord, I'm following the Lord. But it's not what we say that matters. Whatever we say, you know, can be true or not true. But what's true is what is in our hearts. Do we have that faith? And if we have that faith, there will be actions which will come from it. If I, today, it's snowing outside, there's a foot of snow on the ground. If I believe there's a foot of snow on the ground, I'm going to go and I'm going to snow blow my driveway because I'm going to need to get in and out. Like we act on our beliefs. There's practical consequences to all of our beliefs. I believe it's important for me to get to work tomorrow. I believe I need to be there, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. All those things will lead me to snow blow my driveway. If we believe that the Lord has commanded us to do things, and He is the Lord of our lives, if, we're believe, if we believe that there's a hell out there where all evil and those who choose evil will go, I mean, this is going to change the way that we act. If there's true faith in our hearts, if we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we're going to turn to Him and repent of our sin and repent of evil and reject it. And there's going to be real actions which we can look to to say that I believe this. And so James is emphasizing works and doing because it reflects what's actually in our heart. He doesn't want people to deceive themselves. And likewise, I don't either. I, you know, I've stood up before and, and as a pastor looked out and, you know, after six years of being here, you know, seeing people come once a month, giving almost nothing of their income and not growing spiritually. And it's like, you know, I need to challenge these people. They're deceiving themselves. It's been six years. They have not grown in their faith. They're no closer to Jesus now than six years ago. And so at different points, I've challenged people in different ways. One of the ways I did was I said, if you come to church once a week and you give 1% of your income, this is not what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Let's just be honest. This isn't good enough. This isn't what he's commanded, what he's asked. If this is what we're settling for, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're doing just enough to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. This is not what it means to follow Jesus. We have to challenge ourselves to make sure that we're not just hearing the word and deceiving ourselves. A bad pastor is going to be okay with people who come to church for an hour every week and then leave and don't have the transformation that comes from believing in Jesus Christ. And so James's concern here about works in chapter 2 and about doing here, it comes from his desire to see people have a true faith in Jesus Christ. James talks about the law of liberty. Either way, we're a slave, right? If we're we reject Jesus, we're a slave to sin. If we follow Jesus, we're a slave to Christ. Either way, we're a slave. Either way, we're not free in that sense. But James calls it the law of liberty because if we follow Jesus, then we are free from evil. I'll take that liberty any day. 
Either way, I'm a slave and that I don't have control over my life, ultimately. But at least in one of them, I'm free from evil. That's liberty that's the most important to me. I'll take that liberty. And the law of liberty he's talking about, I think that's simply the commands of God throughout the entire Bible. Those commands which free us from evil. When we follow that, that's what it looks like to love, to be godly. When Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? Matthew chapter 22, he says, love the Lord your God. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all the law and the prophets, it's all about what it looks like to be loving, to love others and to love God. We follow those commandments. The more free we are from evil, the more we submit ourselves as slaves to them, the more liberty we have. I think that's what James is talking about when he talks about the perfect law, the law of liberty. The law is good. It's good to follow God's law. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But then again, it's always good to remember that we are not keepers of the law. We're always going to fail in keeping that law, and so we're always dependent on Jesus. The one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. To persevere means being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And there are lots of blessings that come with following God's law. When we preach a one-sided gospel and just talk about the grace and not talk about being free from sin, we fall short of receiving many, many blessings of following his law on this earth. You look at those different lists of sins. The Bible, you know, Apostle Paul does that a lot. Lists makes these lists of sin. Jesus does too. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And there's great blessings in being free from all of those and following the law of liberty. There's great freedom that comes uh, from sexual purity. Great freedom. Great blessings that come from sexual purity. When we can enjoy our spouse more closely to the way God intended. When our hearts are faithful towards our spouse, when our minds are faithful to our spouse, our sex lives with our spouse will be way better. It's fantastic. There's great blessings that come with that. Theft, there's great blessings that come with being honest, respecting other people's property. As a society, there's huge blessings. You know, we're so blessed in America to have that at least as much as we do. People who have traveled to other countries, especially third world countries, you know, have told me, you know, you get out of the airport and you can't, you know, leave your bag anywhere. It'll be gone in a second. You know, you've always got to have your eye on your stuff because nobody has anything. They are out to get yours. It's a miserable way to go about living. It's wonderful to have a society that honors each other's things and personal property that list of Jesus, you can go down through all those things and talk about the great blessings that come from following the law of liberty. Envy. How freeing it is not to be envious, but to be content. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. Pride. How wonderful it is to be free of pride. Prideful people go around and create victims all over the place because their life is all about them. How wonderful to have humility instead of pride. Slander. It's a terrible thing to go around slandering. Your heart is all black and disgusting as you tear people down how wonderful it is to be free from that that's what satan does he tears people down satan's a slanderer jesus is the opposite the bible presents 
the situation as a courtroom where Satan is a prosecuting attorney bringing up all of our sin to try to condemn us before God. That's what Satan does. That's what slanderers do. They just bring up people's sin. Look at how sinful this person is. He's terrible. She's terrible. Slander, slander, slander as you try to separate people from each other, as you try to isolate that person and condemn them. That's what Satan does. Satan's a slanderer. That's what we do when we slander. How wonderful it is to be free from that and instead build people up as Jesus does as their defense attorney. Jesus forgives us of our sin and brings us to God with highlighting all of our good points. It's fantastic. There's great blessings to following God's law, the law of liberty. James says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue. Verse 19, remember, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This person's religion is worthless. Religion, it's a Greek word there. It's, it's thraiskeia. It's an expression of devotion to a transcendent being. Now, Christians, we've come to have a term for religion that means empty rule following. That's not what James means here. That's not actually the definition of religion. That's the way we use it now all the time in evangelical circles and things like that. We're religious. I'm not religious. The world does that too. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. And Christians will say, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus. And that's true when we use the word religion and are meaning empty rules. That's, that's a great expression. It's a great truth to express. But religion is, is actually not a bad thing. The true definition of religion is, is just that, expression of devotion to transcendent beings. We are religious in following Jesus in that sense. We are religious. Every prayer that we pray is a religious activity. Every time we come to church, it's a religious activity. All the things we do in that relationship with Jesus can also be defined by the classical definition of religion, the Greek word there, thraiskeia. And James says here, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, you're involved in the ills of the world and bringing God's heart to that, but you're also not uh, involved in its idolatries. You do good things. You keep yourself unstained from the world. And James again is focusing on what comes from true belief, when we truly believe, there will be that fruit. And I think that's a great, you know, James is just super convicting. The letter of James is sort of like reading Francis Chan or listening to a Francis Chan sermon, because that's all Francis Chan is. Just challenging us to remind ourselves, if we're saved, if we believe, we'll have this fruit. Visiting orphan and widows in their affliction. And so to put this in contemporary evangelical speak, instead of saying religion, we should say, uh, to put it in our language, a relationship with Jesus, right? If we have that relationship with him, a pure and undefiled relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be doing these things, visiting orphans and widows, visiting people who can't repay us. We talked about that again on Sunday. Jesus always says, pulls children before him. He says, whoever would be great would need to serve the least of these. When you look at Mark chapter 
37, he says, Whoever receives a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whoever receives a child, he's talking about people who can't repay you. He's talking about the humble, the least of these. It's receiving not just that child, not just that orphan, not just that widow, but Jesus and, and God, God the Father. And the more we know God the Father, the more we do things like that. Because God knows that we can't repay him in any way. And yet he loves us and offers us salvation and forgiveness. There's nothing that we can add to God. Nothing we can pay him back with. And the more we know God, the more we have that relationship the more our life will be characterized by that. Do we help people who can't help us? Do we help people who are truly suffering? Are we simply going to church and hearing the word? Are we simply reading the Bible and hearing the word? Or are we doers of the word? 